0: Hello there. We're trying to keep Coral Chihuahua going, and so we draw your attention to the possibility of listening to us on Patreon for just a few quid a month. This also magically gets rid of the ads. That's Patreon with an E, patreon.com forward slash Coral Chihuahua. On with the app.
1: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
3: Welcome to episode two of Choral Chihuahua. Second inversion chords. Second inversion chords. I'm Harry Christophers, founder and conductor of The Sixteen. Unfortunately, we're all still in lockdown at the moment due to the coronavirus. So I'm speaking to you from my home in Otford in Kent, the Garden of England. Welcome to my two wonderful colleagues, Robert Hollingworth, director of E-Fagellini. Greetings, Robert of York.
0: Yes, Robin of York these days. I'm, I'm not sure what where the garden of, but it's certainly very beautiful up here.
3: <laughs> and Eamon Dugan, associate conductor of the Sixteen, and also an essential singer in both our ensembles. Hi, Eamon of... Uh, West Sussex, a beautiful West Sussex. Excellent. Now, we're going to devote this episode to one of the most famous and indeed monumental sacred works of the Renaissance, Thomas Tallis's 40-part motet, Spem in Allium. When it appeared in E.L. James's erotic novel, Fifty Shades of Grey, recordings of Spem flew off the shelves. Uh, I've not read the book, so I don't know what was happening in that particular scene. <laughs> but if you have, do let us know.
0: I, I have a friend who's read it. Um...
4: <laughs>
3: That was from Sir David Wilcox's 1965 recording with the Cambridge University Music Society. Comes, as they're known, uh, wonderfully atmospheric. Um, sounds very much if it was done in Kings, and it's it's quite slow, isn't it, guys? Yeah, that that speed
0: is is the thing. When you look at Spem on the on the score, it starts with a semibreve, then another semibreve comes in, and if you if you think about that in modern terms, we think semibreve is very slow, but if you think about it in the 16th century terms, those are just simply two pulses of one. Of one bar, if you like, in, to use modern terminology, and certainly when I conduct it, I like to do it in two. I mean, Eamon and I will have a fight about, <laughs> a fight about this, but but it, it, it's a slow, pulsing heart to the whole thing. And I think one thing about Spem performances that are changing is that you you do you can slightly now step back and see the wood for the trees and see the harmonic growth of the piece. Uh, as opposed to just all that fabulous close up detail.
3: Yeah, I mean that goes back to you know every singer can actually remember the first time they they were in Spam and Allium. Um for me it was 1976 very early days of the Tallis Scholars. Can't remember which choir but I do remember the copies we used those um Philip Brett OUP edition big score 20 inches by 14. And what do they do they cut the thing in two. Down right, right down <laughs> the you know down the, across the middle so one set of uh, singers that have choirs 1 to 4 and the other set five to eight. God forbid if you inquire five, because you wouldn't have, a, wouldn't have a clue what was happening for 20 bars. I mean, you just have to rely on the conductor. Um, Eamon, I, I think you've got a pretty good recollection
5: of your first mem. Yes, I'm still in therapy for mine. Um, <laughs> so this was this was 1993. Uh, it's a piece that I'd I'd listened to a lot in my in my early teens, uh, being a bit of a geek, uh, but I'd never performed it. And this, yeah, this was in my first year at university and schola Cantorum of Oxford were, were giving a performance of it. Now, the reason to go to the Scholar concerts, apart from uh, enjoy the music, of course, was that if you attended the concert, you were allowed to go to the party afterwards. Uh, so that, that was the deal for us. And I was standing outside Magdalen College Chapel waiting for a friend of mine to come to the concert with me. Suddenly, Jeremy Summerley appears, conductor of Scholar at the time. He comes up to me. I'd never met, never met him. And he just points to me and says, you're in the choir at New College, aren't you? I said, yes. He said, "I've just lost my tenor in Choir One. Go and put your DJ on." I was like, "What? I, I'm not a tenor." He's, "I don't care. Go and put your DJ on." I said, "No, no, no. Seriously, and the thing is, Somerley is not someone you argue with," and and he gave me that look that he gives. So I, without even questioning it, I ran back, put my DJ on, legged it back to Maudlin, was handed one of those cut in half scores of the Philip Brett edition, <laughs> and sang tenor in Choir One which has got a lot of top Gs in it. And I didn't really have a top G on me in those days. (laughs) And this is no word of a lie. Jeremy spent the whole performance just standing there laughing at me every time I had to sing. (laughs) Oh, God, I wish I I was there. It was traumatising. Yeah, it was quite something.
0: Well, if we're going to do Jeremy stories, the Jeremy Spemster I know, he was in the early days of mobile phones. It must have been in the early 90s. He was conducting a performance. It was going around in rehearsal. I don't know who he he brought in, but at one point, this glamorous new phone on his desk started to ring, and he picks up the phone while not missing a beat, carry on conducting, and the voice in the other end says, Greer here, Choir Six,
3: where are we? (laughs) (laughs) That is absolutely brilliant. Now, I suspect we were all influenced, I mean, I certainly was, by David Wollstone's legendary 1973 recording of Spem. Let's hear the opening.
5: third a that's really high and actually i think we've
3: we heard somebody in a different guise just then
5: amen <laughs> yes uh, it's it's hard to believe almost but uh, i think that's sally dunkley is it choir five she's on singing top choir b flats five,
3: there yeah, top treble in choir five absolutely i mean she wouldn't she wouldn't dare do anything like that now and uh, and uh, just laughs about it the fact she was singing so high now it's it's it's, it's I mean, the thing that really gets me about Spam and all Tudor that is unmistakably English. Those false relations, they're just great, aren't they?
5: Yeah, absolutely. We mentioned dissonance um, in the first episode. We touched on it in, in Monteverdi's writing, but this is... This is a sound world which is peculiarly English, isn't it? I mean, those false
3: relations, for people who don't know what that is, that is, it's simple simple terms, it's the clash of major and minor absolutely at the same time.
0: There is another issue here in that a lot of those false relations that Wollstone enjoys are his own interpretations, they're not in the score. Um, without going too deep into this, the uh, Renaissance musicians would have added some of their own sharps and flats to the score according to mostly melodic rules of what you can do in certain intervals you can't have. But there's a lot of latitude in them. And one of the problems I have with this recording, and I'm going to go against you guys here, Mm -hmm. is that I think in a slightly choral, scholarly way, Wollstone has gone out to create as many false relations as possible. Uh, I mean, here's a man who was heavily responsible for bringing back the music of John Shepherd into the world, and his music really does seem to be full of false relations, doesn't it? Uh, but I think that Wilson's recording includes a lot that Talis would have disapproved of. He simply sharpened every CNF he can because he likes the distant noise it makes. Um, now, let's accept that there are two different things here, and actually both are authentic. We can actually use that word. The first is that there was presumably a version that Talis intended and would have asked for at any performance he would be in charge of. Um, we can't say what that is for sure, and I hold that it doesn't have as much dissonance as Wollstone creates, but let's just accept that Talis would have had a view. The second is that any performance in the late 16th century that, Tal- that Talis hadn't been in control of. But involving musicians used to making their own decisions about when to sharpen the C's and F's and when not to, which was absolutely part of the training at the time, that it would probably have sounded different from Talis's. My issue is only that Wollstone seems deliberately to have gone out looking for this dissonance because he liked it. So I think we have to be a bit careful before we say that all that dissonance is necessarily part of Talis's sound world.
3: Yes, I think you're right. I mean, David used to love sticking a false at every single juncture. Um, now, actually, I think for the listeners, it would be really good to have a little potted history because uh, you know, there's nothing as massive as this in the English repertoire. So, what inspired Tallis to write it? According to an early 17th century anecdote, it's a result of a challenge. A multi voice motet, possibly Strigio's 40 part, Ecce Beata Lucem, was brought to England. And the Duke, possibly Howard, Duke of Norfolk, there's a lot of possibles here, asked whether none of our Englishmen could set as good a song. Tallis took up the challenge, possibly commissioned by the Duke of Norfolk and the Earl of Arundel. Both were staunch Catholics, so maybe Spem carries some politically religious message. I'm throwing a lot, a lot of ifs here. And performed at Arundel House very near to the present-day Somerset House in London. Now... There's been a lot of theories. Um, Hugh Keat, John Milsom in recent times uh, have been waxing lyrical about it. And Robert, I believe you work closely with Hugh on your recording.
0: Yes, that's right. He's fascinating on it. And um, I suppose what we're left with is, as you say, there's so little history. The fact that the first mention of the piece is from 26 years after Tallis's death, the first uh, score of it in Latin is only from the 18th century. So John Milsom, whom we just mentioned, will refer to this rather like Prince as the, as the piece known as Spem and Allium. And we'll, and we'll talk about the English version that comes first shortly, I expect. But it's tantalising because there's so little known about its gestation. Absolutely nothing from Tallis's own lifetime for a start. And that note you refer to, Harry, says that it was commissioned by the Duke of, there's just a gap, a line and first performed at Arundel House, well, if that implies the Earl of Arundel and the Duke of Norfolk, then was it written for Catholic sympathisers like them? Uh, Then you move on to the numerology, because if you take the 24-character Latin alphabet, um, then you'll find that the Catholics' great hope to take over the English throne was Mary, Queen of Scots. And if you count A as 1, B, 2, and C as 3, which they absolutely did in the 16th century and before, then Mary in Latin Maria comes out as 40. So was it symbolic for that? Another thing, the piece is 69 longs long. One long is four semi-briefs. And Talis's name adds up to 69. Is that relevant? But then Gabriel Jackson, who wrote his own 40-part motet as a companion piece to Spem, his piece is 69 longs long as well. But he didn't even realise that until it was pointed <laughs> out to Marcus. So you do have to be quite careful.
3: Now, actually, pitch is quite an interesting thing, because when we heard that Wollstone recording, it was up a minor third from the original printed pitch of G. And I was just looking at a few of the other recordings, Talis Scholars, Tavner Consort, they do it up a semitone. I actually did it in A. I don't think I'd do it like that again. I mean... Does
5: it actually matter, Eamon, what what pitch we do these pieces at? certainly depends on what you're going to pair with it. If you've got that many singers together, uh, it's worth trying to do another 40-part piece as well, isn't it? So um, it's worth looking at it from that point of view. Many of the contemporary pieces that have been written to be companion pieces to Speminalium have gone with the the Philip Brett scoring. So that's soprano, alto, tenor, baritone, bass. My personal preference is, is for that scoring, partly because I love singing those baritone lines, but I think it sits most comfortably vocally in that pitch.
0: Yeah, the, 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 I think you've put your finger on it. The issue is not so much pitch, and this is something we could talk about with the whole Wollstone theory of transposing uh, music of this period up a minor third. It's what it does to the voicing. Now, if you transpose it up a tone or a minor third so that that middle line, the tenor, effectively has to be sung by altos or countertenors, um, then you lose that clarity in the middle lower part of of that of that middle part so it, it and it ends up a much more heavily top layered piece you end up just hearing you know the icing on the cake as opposed to all that interesting cake work lo- lower down
3: yeah it's interesting actually because i mean of course you know, I was at Oxford the same sort of time I was taught by Wollstone. so i I suppose in a sense, I was a disciple of Wollstone, but I'm very much now somebody who's who's gone back to the original pitch idea but looking back to those days, you know altos were you know I used to call them laser beam altos they had an incredible range they could really dig down to bottom e flats and and they they couldn't get higher than a than a B flat a pub a pub middle c and so it was very much you know you i mean either people were gearing their voices towards, you know, that manner, of that way of singing, or indeed Wollstone was taking those theories from the people he was hearing at the time. Um, but I totally agree, you know, go back to the original pitch, it's so wonderfully sonorous, it, it, it loses nothing. Um, now, there's always a question about uh, with or without instruments, um, maybe not quite like this. Snippet of uh, Noel Acciote's arrangement for electric guitar. Some nice suspensions and false relations there. Um, Now, there are so many recordings of Spem about. um, And it's, I mean, for me, it was a really difficult piece to record.
5: But actually, it's a piece for live performance, isn't it, guys? Absolutely. I mean, I've recorded it five times with five different groups. uh, And, you know, some of them are, are wonderful recordings, but it never... It never matches up to the live performance. Right from the opening bars, the the poise of those opening bars. But there's so much promise, uh, in, you know, in that opening first choir phrase. And I'm always struck by the sense of excitement that I feel when I'm involved in a performance. That comes. It's like you're about to start on an incredible journey, and you do get that to a degree with uh, with recordings. But for me, live performance is always going to be. Uh, you know, the, the preferred medium. Although, of course, nowadays there are, you, you know, it is possible to listen to it on disc in surround sound, so you get more of that that sonic experience. True, but I remember uh, Hugh
0: Keat talking about the recording he did for the 1589 Intermedi, where they had all these, uh, they spent a lot of the budget on sort of platforms and things so that the microphones could pick up all the differences. But in the end, it's nowhere near as, as acute as being in, in a room where it's being performed, because you can use your eyes, and in fact, we're sitting here a few days after Stele Antico's uh, new online uh, recorded in lockdown version came out. And the fascinating thing about that is not the sound. It's that the way they put it together, you can see the different groups singing at any one time because there are sort of 40 squares and they're filled when someone's singing. So that's the idea of being able to see as well as hear is, is, is part of it.
3: Yeah, I think it's you know, it is it for me it's sort of like going to listen to Messian Tarangolila Symphony. You have to have a building that can really take the sound and make it make it work for you. And actually, funny enough, for me the hairiest performance I ever did of it was in St. Paul's Cathedral and each choir was in front of one of the eight pillars of the dome. I mean, they were miles away from each other, but the effect for the audience was that they became a part of one of those choirs, if they're in, sitting in close to choir seven, they they heard the whole piece with, from the choir seven perspective and they found it fascinating. And uh, so I think it is, you know, for me, it is, you know, a piece to perform. And um, I don't think I'd ever record it again. Hiring for your small
1: business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
5: Robert, didn't we do performances with you where the audience, we did it in the round and the audience were able to walk around and put themselves in front of different choirs so they could experience different aspects of the piece?
0: Yes, that's right. That was the tour in in 2012 when we we were performing it with the Strigio 40-part mass that seems to have inspired it. I think it was the mass that um, he's likely to have heard in in London in 1567 when Strigio came across and visited Queen Elizabeth and we allowed the audience to walk around. Now that was fascinating because you can be in a marvellous building and be rather stuck there and as you say Harry says you, you can hear that you might be in, in front of Choir Seven in St Paul's but being allowed to move around gave people that freedom and that was, that was rather exciting.
3: There must be special moments for all of us in SPEM. I mean, for me, it's the respite chords, respite umilitatem nostrum, have regard for our humility. You know, those two full-block chords, first time a warm A major, isn't it? And then, you know, 10 bars later, you get this sonorous keynote G major. Um, I just love those those particular moments to, to conduct and bring everybody in. But um, Eamon, how about you?
5: Yeah, well, actually, you've just touched on my personal favourite is is after the first respite, the humilitatem. Um it's the switch from the major to the minor chord and you have all voices in for the for the uh, for the first respite uh, but then as he paints um, the the lowliness uh, and the the harmonic rate of change slows down a little bit But it's even the way it looks on the page you've had a lot of busyness and a lot of black notation prior to that and then umilitatum just suddenly becomes very much more linear and white it's it's a wonderful moment of contrast and just the simple change of major to minor, it's, it's got such emotional impact at that moment. That, that A major moment it's, it
0: takes me back a little bit to this
5: business about how many
0: sharps to add over the Cs, because that passage just before it is a place where you might add C sharps but, you know, for reasons it's kind of difficult to explain in live, if you don't at that moment, and there's a very good argument for not, when the C-sharp appears in Respice, it's a very, very striking moment simply because you haven't had it beforehand. And in Renaissance musical theory, to move into sharp keys, remember the things in sort of G Mixolydian, he, da, 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 da. so suddenly to go from that G into A is is two steps up the circle of fifths. So it's a very, very strong command. I mean, it's it's quite an odd bit of writing, isn't it? Because it's not a sort of pliant respite, please look down on us. It's a a command at that moment. And then he goes on, the bit Amers just mentioned, look down on our humility. And instead of doing what, I don't know, Monteverdi or Gombert would have done, which is to base everything at the bottom, he has the sopranos right at the top of their range going,
4: on our humility
0: on our loneliness right at the top there it's a it's a crazy bit of writing it was a wonderful bit of singing as well thank you robert yeah yeah all right
5: you you can shut up as well i've got nothing <laughs> that's maimon it's one of the things that does set this piece apart from strigios is harmonically how much further it goes i mean the strigio is a great piece but it's a it's an exercise in in sonic uh, experience and texture whereas talus is it's just on a different on a different level, I think.
3: It certainly is. Now let's hear something slightly different. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Live Henry, princely and mighty, Henry Live. Um, <laughs> I actually, I am Richard Henry, but anyway. Uh, that would have been performed at Henry's investiture as Prince of Wales in 1610. Sadly, he died a couple of years later of typhoid. I was going to say, how did that go for him? <laughs> well, yes. And the inter- I mean, Robert, you referred to this earlier. This is the av- earliest available source of the work. It's the Edgerton Manuscript in the British Museum. The text sing and glorifies in praise of King James I's two sons, Henry and Charles. And it was performed again for charles's investiture in the manuscript henry's name is crossed out and uh, rather crudely and actually a bit awkwardly charles's is, is inserted it's in english
0: yes and it changes the sound picture um so far what we haven't had uh, is uh, uh is a version in how the english of the time might have sounded i wonder whether that'll happen that's an interesting part of uh period instrument performance that has generally been unexplored. A few groups have done it. Fagilini did a couple of bird discs back in the 90s like that. But I wonder how those very bright English vowels from, from in the early 17th century might have sounded. But, but even without that here, it's a, it's, a, it's a strong, striking sound, isn't it? You've gone for a huge A major there on the... What is that word instead of respite? What is the word that appears at that moment?
3: Oh, gosh. Uh,
0: live Henry. Isn't it Live Henry? Live Henry. Oh, Henry live. Henry
3: live. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Well, quite a striking thing to have.
3: Yeah. And very difficult. If you then got to sing James, it's a bit like that bit in love, actually, isn't it? Fit Christmas in. Um, but uh... <laughs> just, just not <laughs> very much. Just not very much. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, of course, it changes the whole feel of the piece because it has to be done at a faster speed to be uh, to be celebratory. Um, and of course, you know, I added instruments to it, which is something you've done, Robert. Yes. I'm just aware that people listening to this sort of programme Looking
0: sometimes for answers, what's the proper way to do things? I think you know it's really worth shouting out about the fact the idea that there would have been one way to do anything in the early seventeenth century uh, is is crazy. And we've already talked about music affector adding sharps and flats. They would have done it as they as they fancied it there and then. Um, they wouldn't have had anyone breathing down their neck. They would have simply said, "This is the way I I fancy doing it." So the issue of instruments, it's just worth stating that once a composer had written something, it was entirely up to the performers how they would have done things. Um, so, you know, if, if something was being done in, you know, a book of motets was being done for domestic use for performance at home, with spiritual, uh, what the Jesuits would have called spiritual recreation, then they would have played and sung it with whatever they had. Hugh Keats' point about uh, SPEM was that the Earl of Arundel had a, a famous collection of, of players as well as instruments. Um, and uh, Derek Gerard, the uh, Flemish musician who was working for him, would surely have used all of them. Why not? It's it, The fact that a piece has underlay to it, has text written underneath the notes, doesn't mean it was sung. They could have been there... Uh, simply for the uh, instrumentalists to know how to phrase it. That's absolutely the way w- with um, the Gabriellis. This, uh, it's exactly the same time in Italy. Everything's underlaid, but no one is suggesting that bassists were singing low B flats and and, and uh, you know, falsettists were singing soprano top B flats. It's simply a way of, of underlaying. So it's absolutely a reasonable part of the sound picture. Whether people prefer it or not, that's up to them.
3: I remember when John Milsom... Um... Suggest so I recorded the, the English version. He said to me, it would, This would have been performed outside, so it would have had instruments uh, doubling various parts or, or just on those parts. And uh, it makes a wonderfully sonorous, uh, um, exciting sound. Lovely chatting to you both, but we're now reaching the end of episode two of Choral Showa. Other second inversion chords. Other second inversion chords.
4: Staying alive. Staying alive.
3: If you've liked what you've heard, please spread the word. You can find us on your podcast networks or via our respective websites, www.the16.com and www.efagilini.com. Now, let's close with an excerpt from Robert's recording. Um, I'm not going to flatter you too much, Robert, here, but I think it's absolutely magnificent and a perfect balance of singers and instrumentalists.
0: Well, it was an interesting one thinking it through because once you start thinking, well, instruments the, the question it's much easier in the strigio which we were recording at the same time uh, to pick out certain colors um, but here of course because as you've said um, both of you the piece is so much more polyphonic than strigios uh, by the way I've got to come back to you on the business that the, uh, the talus is necessarily a better piece coffee isn't necessarily a, a less good drink than wine they're just two <laughs> entirely different things and they're looking to do two different things so shut up on that. Um, I, said it, I said
5: it to provoke you.
0: The, the the question when you're starting to add instruments to this is, do you take voices out or are you doubling? And are there parts that are more important? And certainly looking through the score with, with Hugh Keat, he felt that there were places where they, the first and the third voice of each choir, certainly in the domine deus, really needed to come through. So what we did is we had roughly, we put string instruments on the top 20 voices and cornets and sackbuts on the bottom 20 voices, but not all of them, just picking out certain ones. Uh, And it does add a certain luster to it, and it brings a certain polyphonic clarity. That's the thing about this lovely homogenous thing. I think people... I'm with Beecham here. He said, um, the English don't like music, just the noise it makes. And I think that's a real danger with SPEM, that people just love the sort of gooey sort of thing of it. And actually to try to bring out some of the polyphony... Uh, which we've already talked about is is difficult if it's transposed up because you lose some of that clarity in the middle register with with countertenors. Um, I think the instruments have done us a favour here and you can pick up more of the individual lines. Chihuahua is brought to you by E. in the 16 and produced by Perseus, the 16 and Polyphonic Films. It's supported using public funding by the National Lottery through Arts Council England and this episode was further sponsored by Maurice Parry Wingfield. If you'd like to sponsor an episode please contact us through either ensemble.
1: right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
0: Just before you go, another reminder to try listening on Patreon, which costs just a few pounds per month. Or if you prefer, you can very simply make a one-off donation. You can actually do either via com. Thanks.